Medicare for all. Your bros can suck my balls. Fuck your reply, guys. Please don't fuck your reply, guys. Just listen to reply, guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. Hello. This is the Leftist Comedy Podcast for everyone. Sorry about the audio this week. Um, I am in Denver. Um, so I'm yeah. in this room. Not great audio. But how are you doing, Moanid? I, I love that the uh, the idea that Denver is just bad for audio in general. Yeah, it's like, really high up here. It's just like you can't. Exactly. Yeah. It's in the mountains. Yeah, you, you start talking and then you're just immediately out of breath, and it just does not work. Yeah, uh, I'm doing great. I'm doing well. Uh, we're, we're recording this on International Women's Day. So uh, to all international women, uh, happy birthday. Yes, it's my this is the day I was created. Um, it, like how we all women. Jesus on Christmas. We celebrate me today. <laughs> yeah, all women are Pisces. Absolutely. Yes. Um, so this week, in a few minutes coming up, we have a really good interview for you with Leah Goodridge, who is mm-hmm. uh, on the Planning Commission of New York, and she's also a tenants' rights attorney, not tenants' rights attorney, and senate attorney. It does have to do with tenants' rights, but that's not the job. Yeah. Now. Um. So we are uh, very excited, but uh, today I want to bring up before in advance. We got it. I didn't tell you uh, about the uh, window gate. Have you seen this? The window gate? Yeah, so there's like... No, oh, okay, tell me. <laughs> there's a bunch of people. To me, this is just like capitalism in a nutshell. There's a bunch of people who are lobbying to get rid of the building requirement that you have to have windows in bedrooms. Uh, it's usually, it's the law in most places that you have to have a window, both for natural light sanity re- reasons and also for you know fire safety in a lot of cases. Um so anyway, uh, there's just all these people, like developers in particular, but also their fans that are like, we shouldn't have to have the windows. And to me, that's just like capitalism is when you, <laughs> the plan for affordable housing is to be like, well, maybe they'll give us a discount if we get rid of uh, windows, which are expensive. Um, so- that doesn't like That doesn't even like logically make sense. Like, yeah, the savings is not going to be passed on to the consumer. Anyway, we we talked about a lot of this stuff with Leah, like, but to me, I'm just somebody said my favorite uh, replier this week uh, was calling for, uh, ant for uh, anti. She called people anti windowless bedroom advocates. So I guess that is what I am is an anti windowless bedroom advocate. I, I I'm honestly I'm in awe of every time like they come up with something like that. I'm just like it feels very like cartoonishly evil and very creative to be honest. Like I'm just like waiting to hear what's next to save money. Like what why is it that we can like take away from apartments that they can claim that apartments will still be functional without? Yeah, it's pretty um you know, I mean, we've seen they're trying to change the fire safety codes. Definitely. They're also trying to change like the pay requirements in many places for like construction labor. But I don't really think we'll see an end to what the kind of libertarian minded people will try to to get rid Amazing. of. Amazing. Yeah. 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 If you if you want to rent an apartment without a roof, I, I, I got one for you. You know, you get to see the sky. 
Yeah. And uh, it's it's incredible. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> Sky apartments. Amazing. You, you also wanted to talk about the uh, Biden uh, immigration law, new laws or what? Well, not new laws, but yeah. he's bringing back old laws. Yeah. So, um, unfortunately, the it looks like the Biden administration is considering bringing back family detention, uh, which is a very euphemistic way of saying um, throwing asylum seekers, a, a lot of times mothers and babies um, in prison cells. And, um, you know, there's been cases uh, of, you know, people dying in these situations, um, you know, both by suicide and, um, you know, from, from other causes related to the like unsafety and the conditions. And uh, yeah, um, you know, this was something that obviously the Democrats, both the elected Democrats and their fans made a huge deal of during the Trump administration. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, now Biden is uh, considering it to, um, you know, to not much, not much ruckus, you know, except from, um, a few people, you know, we just don't really see uh, what, what were they always talking about? Kids in cages. That was a phrase during the Trump administration. Yeah. But it's like we want to put kids in cages. That's what he's saying. Um, and very few people are uh, holding him to the same standard that they held President Trump to. And of course, this is just absolutely disgusting. Yeah, I mean, and and from what I read, from like what I read, like they like. I mean, there isn't much about it. Like they're like, you know, you kind of like hear the whispers and and all of that. But they, the White House, like has refused to comment, so we don't even know. Uh, and obviously, it doesn't. I mean, clearly, none of this surprises me. Like it's it's you know, uh, they just bring, they keep bringing back like Trump like era policies that they just like complain about. Like kind of like, they just like repackage them. And I'm just honestly more curious to see. And hopefully, this doesn't go through. But if they do br- want to bring it back, I just. I'm curious to see how they're going to package it. Yeah, I mean, I think we got some some insight into how they're going to package it. They, if you know, if they do uh, do that, um, was uh, you know the the White House. Um, this is what they uh, the department spokesperson said. Um, the administration. This is from a New York Times article on this Mm -hmm. the administration will continue to prioritize safe orderly and humane processing of migrants uh lewis miranda a department spokesperson said in a statement um you know so they'll they'll say that it's somehow the more humane version you know Mm. um, of it and um you know they'll i mean Another thing um, from this article, one of the officials cautioned that the administration would follow the court settlement that sets a 20 day limit for detaining families rather than holding them for weeks or even months, as the previous administrations did. So, you know, they'll say that it's shorter, that it's just some kind of temporary processing. I mean, and it's like, honestly, even if they say that TBD, if that's actually what happens, I, I doubt yeah, it. No. Yeah, we all know fascism is okay as long as you do it like for like a little bit, not for too long. Then yeah, it's bad. I mean, and it's also just like, it's not, look, there's plenty of rules about these places, but they're not enforced because the people who would be responsible for enforcing them are like ICE agents who are not. Exactly. You know, it's not like. No, they're. 
like they're like legit bad people. Like you literally be only become a nice agent is because you do not like immigrants. Yeah, and you and know, I, I mean, yeah. I mean, there's already rules for these places. Like, I mean, one rule is that you have to feed people. You know, of course, but we see people like, um, you know, having uh, you know, malnutrition. Um, you know, being yeah. beat up, sexually assaulted. Um. Mm-hmm including by ICE agents, um, you know, we've seen uh, forced sterilization. I mean, this is, you know, it's it's like they can say all they want, like, oh, we're going to do the more compassionate version of this, but there there is no compassionate version of it. Yeah, this. there is no compassionate version. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I don't know. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Hopefully this doesn't go through, like someone will like, stand up to them and like, make it go away because it's just it's awful and like we saw what happened last time this happened you know like all of these families being like separated from their kids and all of that shit and it's just like because like what's the even get the guarantee like people will just like end up even in the same place and like they even haven't like i can't believe that they're like reconsidering like bringing this back when they even like haven't like reunited all of these kids with their families from like the last time yeah, it's just absolutely disgusting. I mean, there have been some mainstream Democrats that spoke mm-hmm. out against this. Um, Julian Castro, Julian Castro, rather, mm-hmm. uh, he um, he said on Twitter, if you spoke out against family detention separation under Trump, you should speak out now too. family detention mm-hmm. isn't about managing the border. It's used for deterrence. The cruelty is the point. It's ineffective and plays politics with desperate families. Let's do better. So, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. he, Julian Castro is he, uh, in a lot of his uh, policies. He's a, a normal uh, Democrat. But, you know, I, I was glad to see him speak out about yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Here. Um, you know, and Jayapal uh said something about it. Um, Jamal Bowman and mm-hmm. you know, but uh yeah, I mean let's let's really I mean the the whole system is just such a disgusting way to, to treat people that are often seeing yeah. war and violence and this treatment mm-hmm. is so bad that you know people have to be in a truly desperate situation to be willing to like put themselves in that situation like you know it's like they act like oh yeah we're just you know we're gonna deter people you know because but there's no like no deterrence if the alternative is like war exactly yeah exactly yeah like that like death or like gang violence and all of that like it's yeah yeah i mean like we all know this it's like people like don't take these drastic decisions to like bring their kids through the border unless the alternative is much much worse and if it's not clearly it's not stopping people so stop doing it they're like so much and also like the fact that like they're not doing anything illegal like no, seeking asylum asylum seeking is is legal yeah. completely legal it's constitutional like not, they're not doing anything bad so to, to even like to frame it as something that they're like doing a crime and they're being punished for it well they're not doing a crime so yeah. what is yeah so none of this makes any sense yeah i mean you know that's a it's a difficult distinction to talk about because it's mm-hmm. like we shouldn't be uh throwing people in jail even if what they're doing is quote of course yeah illegal you know like from, yeah 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 like, uh, but i mean there is just something i think just it's an extra level of bad when you know we're saying like okay this is actually uh 
you're actually following the laws, but we're throwing you in jail anyway. You know exactly, yeah, exactly. Because you hear it over and over again, they're like, "Just do it the legal way, and you'll be fine." Okay, they're doing it the legal way. Now what? Yeah, yeah, it's really, really bad. So, you know, we'll watch for developments on this, but you know, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm trying to have faith that uh, that the that my liberal friends out there are going to also uh, oppose this, even if it has a Biden stamp on it. You know, yeah, um, because, absolutely. Yeah, it it is it is. I'm uh, I'm not not in favor of like electing Trump or DeSantis or whatever. I literally hate those people so much. But there mm-hmm. is something really sad about the way that like people will excuse something if it comes out of a Democratic administration, which obviously we saw. Oh, absolutely. Done with Obama, and we're seeing again with Biden. But for the rest of this episode, we have a really great conversation that was extremely informative. Uh, we talked about. Um, why rights to counsel um, in housing court is extremely important. We talked about, um, you know, gentrification. We talked about how to build affordable housing. Um, you know, I think we've covered these topics on the show in the past uh, from some different perspectives, but I think Leah's perspective is extremely interesting and adds a lot mm-hmm. to this conversation with her, you know, years of experience being a tenant attorney um, and on the planning commission. And she just really has a lot of great stuff to say about this. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you soon. Enjoy the interview. Just listen to reply guys. Hello and welcome back to Reply, guys. I am so stoked today because we have someone joining us that I have been wanting to get on the podcast for a long time. I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of her Twitter. Uh, We are joined today by Leah Goodridge, who is a commissioner on the uh, NYC Planning Commission and also a tenants' rights attorney. And I've just really loved her thoughts on housing development uh, you know, and how we can prevent the displacement that we're seeing in our city. So I just, I'm just very stoked. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here and I'm a huge fan of yours as well, both of you. So thank you so much. Um, so let's, first of all, I don't know, I should know the answer to this question, but I don't. What is, what do the commissioners do? What are the planning commissioners? I know, right? I mean, listen, it's like (laughs) half of New York, like, you know, so, um, so the New York City Planning Commission handles all things land use. Uh, there is a body of government called the Department of City Planning. That's a government agency mm-hmm. of New York City. And then there's separate and apart from that, there is um, a group of 13 commissioners. And I'm one of the 13. And we meet frequently. We actually meet twice a week, every two weeks, and we decide on all things land use. And most of those, I would say about 90% of the proposals that come before us, it has to do with housing, like housing being built, housing being modified. Um, and so that's it. But, but you know, an example of a non-housing proposal is the use of the sidewalks for restaurants, for, you know, um, those, mm. those sheds. So that was a total land use issue that came before the commission, as well as many other commercial and non-residential housing issues. So it's, it's, you know, we keep busy. <laughs> We're a busy body. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, imagine that uh, being a tenant attorney in New York is probably a, a pretty busy job as well. Oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's, 
it's an incredibly busy and traumatic job because I don't think most people realize uh, tenant attorneys are like the ER doctors of um, litigators. You know, we're constantly hmm. putting fires. You know, basically what happens is when you're a tenant's rights attorney, um, you are representing people who are facing eviction. So most of our clients are in the process of being evicted. It's not like, you know, they got a letter and they're, th- you know, they may get it. They're getting evicted right now. Yeah. And so literally, Every moment from the time you meet them, you're basically kind of on edge because you're like, did they get the eviction letter? Did they get, you know, the eviction notice? Then you have to file a motion. And because we're attorneys, uh, you kind of don't have a lot of room to mess up. You know, if you mess up, someone gets evicted. So that's a lot of liability. So it's a stressful job. I've been doing it for the last 10 years. I love it. But any tenant attorney, if someone says, oh, it's great, there's no stress, they're probably not telling the truth. (laughs) Yeah. I have been doing um I've been doing some stuff with rights to counsel here in New York City. And if you don't for, for listeners, if you don't know what rights to counsel is, uh rights to counsel means that tenants are have the right to an attorney uh in in housing court and eviction cases. And there's a we ha- we have it in New York City, but there's a statewide um bill to to mandate it throughout uh New York State. And I think that uh, other states have followed New York's lead and are doing that. And I was just curious on like your your thoughts about like how having an attorney can help and you know why it is potentially important for someone to have that. Yeah, so I think the best example I can give, right, is so I've been a tenant's rights attorney for a little over 10 years and the right to counsel was passed about five years ago. And so I was practicing before it was passed. And what would happen is someone, a tenant would go to court because Mm -hmm. they got eviction notice and they had a court case. And when you're in court, a lawyer comes up to you and they go, hey, hey, uh, so I'm an attorney and, you know, you're facing this eviction case. And so we've got this deal. I wrote this agreement for you to sign. Uh, basically, it's the best thing for you to do. And sometimes it'll say the person owes $10,000 or sometimes it'll say I'm going to move out because I owe this money. Because sometimes they'll say, well, can you pay the $5,000? Oh, no, I can't. OK, so then sign this move out agreement. They sign it and then they lose their apartment. And then mm. after that. Then they go, they talk to someone and say, hey, maybe you should get an attorney. And then finally, they're rooted to a free attorney who's me. And then I have to tell them this, you had defenses that unfortunately you didn't know about because you didn't have an attorney. And now you've lost a 20-year rent-stabilized apartment. And we're going to see what we can do about it. That used to happen a lot before Mm. the right to counsel. Meaning specifically that people would, tenants would go to court, not know about their defenses um, and therefore not be able to um, name them to raise them and then lose their rights. And sometimes it'd be losing their actual apartment. And so uh, the right to counsel is very important because it prevents that. It provides an attorney for people who are low income so they can't pay for their own attorney. Um And that's really important because New York is a very unforgiving city, meaning that if you live in an apartment right now and and it's like, say, $1,200 for a studio, there's a very little chance that if you leave that apartment that you're going to find something cheaper. 
So that's what oh, I'm absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. If you get evicted because you couldn't pay your current rent, it's not like it's going to be so easy to go find another apartment with cheaper rent. No, it's yeah, it's 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 definitely almost impossible. Not even like yeah, I feel like I have a lot of people that I know that are just like leaving their apartments and looking for some other stuff or like trying to move to the city and they have the money and the means and even then it still feels impossible to get anything. So I can't yeah. even imagine trying to do it when you literally cannot barely can afford to. Yeah, it's it's a very unforgiving city and and in particular if you weren't wealthy and you mm-hmm. don't have economic cushion to help you if you do face some sort of housing instability, it is very easy to end up in the shelter system. It's very easy to become unhoused. It, Absolutely. It, I mean, I, I, I don't, I, I won't make you uh, go on, on record with your thoughts about our mayor, but I, you know, I, what are the, like in New York currently <laughs> at this time, like what are the options for people who do lose their housing? I mean, it's tough. There aren't that many options. You try to get an attorney um, and, you know, try to get back your housing. If you had rights that you weren't able to assert because you didn't have an attorney, that's one. Um, But the more common scenario is you're in the shelter system and you're trying to get out. You're trying to get a program that will be able to help you like, um, you know, uh, FEPS is one city. FEPS is a main one. If you're in the shelter system, section mm-hmm. eight, uh, is a program that there's been a wait list for section eight for over 10 years. Um, and so section eight, isn't necessarily something new that you get on. So there are very few other programs that will help you be able to pay your rent, But I do want to also note, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, that there's also housing discrimination. So Mm -hmm. even if you do have these other programs in Section 8, there are some landlords that will not want to rent to tenants who have supplemental income because they want a tenant who is paying rent by employment and not necessarily through a program. So there's so many challenges that tenants face. It is truly an unforgiving market. I've been thinking a lot about... Um, okay, so the, there's this debate, which I'm sure, you know, people are, are aware of to, to varying degrees, but, you know, what is the best way of, uh, you know, providing, creating affordable housing? And, you know, we've talked about that on the show before, but one piece that I really wanted to ask you about, because I know you have a lot of expertise in this area, Um we do this thing in New York, and there's also um, this thing, you know, a similar thing in other cities where, like, in market rate development, there's like a certain amount of units that are designated to be affordable. And, you know, I think it's like, it sounds good, like affordable housing, but, you know, what are those what what's actually going on there like how much affordable housing is being created how affordable is it yeah i mean i think it it's it's really layered so let me just sort of unpack unpack it by layer the first layer is um i don't have a problem with market rate housing being built i i don't have an issue with it at all um what i have a problem with is that 
we already have a lot of unaffordable housing and we need to catch up in terms of providing affordable housing. I think sometimes when we get into the housing debates, it's very black and white. And so once you start arguing for affordable housing, a common reply is, well, we must have some housing for wealthy people, for rich people. So if you're arguing for affordable, for affordable housing, that must mean that you don't agree with there being any market rate housing. That that And, and that's not my position. Um, I actually have approved most housing proposals on the commission. Um, the ones that I have not approved tend to be the large scale ones that will truly shape an entire neighborhood and a borough mm. and perhaps because we're talking about over a thousand units. Sometimes mm -hmm. what, one of them that I have been against are like over 3000 units that has the capacity to shape the city, right? And to really send a signal for other housing proposals. So I tend to be very strong about the fact that those are only 25% of affordable housing units. And some of the 20, most of the 25% aren't even incomes for low income. So I speak up about that. So, so, you know, let me just take a step back. So the first layer to unpack is that, um, yes, we need more affordable housing and people arguing for more affordable housing doesn't mean that we're saying there should be no market rate housing. We are saying that we already have a system where there is so much unaffordable housing as is. We need to proactively act. And if we're talking about the government here, we're talking about the city, the city has a capacity to proactively and affirmatively work to provide and fund affordable housing. So that's one layer. The second layer is after the housing, when the housing is being proposed, how much is there? And I personally don't think that 25 to 30% is enough. Now, if you talked about that nationwide, I think a lot of other states will say, oh, that's great. You know, it's it's a high amount. It's 30 percent. You know, what more do you want? But when mm. we're talking again about an unforgiving market like New York City, where we have had a homelessness crisis for the past however long, it, it, it isn't new, but it is certainly exacerbated, where we have the fact that we have right to counsel attorneys and we don't even have enough money to fund it because the industry requires so many eviction attorneys. I think that we really need to think about funding more than just 30%. The third layer to unpack is when we do have that affordable housing, sometimes the incomes required aren't even that affordable. We're talking about housing starting at $80,000, which again, let me take a step back. I don't necessarily have a problem with the fact that we have moderate income included in affordable housing. My issue is when we only have a very small portion of affordable housing being provided, and then a big portion of that being high incomes that are much higher than just the average New York New Yorker who's working. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there are like three different layers, I think, to affordable housing that we really need to unpack that sometimes it gets muddied in the debate. Um, but to sum it up, I think that we as a city need to affirmatively fund more affordable housing. It should not just come from private developers. Um, that's what drives a lot of the fights because the developers are funding it through themselves. And then the city uh -huh. 
says, you know, well, our goal is we'll knock out the administrative burdens for you. And no, I think that the city, we as a city, the same way that we have had conversations about funding around the police and NYPD and looking at funding as a means to address the root cause of a problem as opposed to just the Band-Aid, I think we need to have those same conversations in housing. Instead of funding a whole bunch of shelters and funding just 20% of affordable housing that starts at moderate income, we really need to put more money towards this and fund it, including for very low income as well. Totally agree. Um, one thing that I've seen you talk about a lot is, um, you know, like the way that uh, development has been happening um, in New York, maybe not all of it, but a lot of it, like, it, you know, unfortunately, um, it's just ended up like a lot of these rezonings, a lot of this development has has just ended up resulting in the displacement of so many low income people, um, so many longtime New Yorkers, so many black and brown people. And, you know, having being a person that saw a lot about this, what do you feel like are the main factors that are driving displacement uh, other than the fact that like rent keeps getting more expensive, which which is a, a given? I mean, there's, and this is a point of contention, but I believe a secondary displacement exists, right? Um, <laughs> you know, first secondary of all, for people who don't know, you know, secondary displacement meaning that when you have these developments that go up, they may not be displaced directly, but there's certainly indirect displacement that happens because the pressures of, um, basically transforming a neighborhood so that wealthier residents move in, there are other types of events that tend to happen that work to push out existing residents. So once one, I was going to say small, but it's not small. One example, and there've been studies about this, is um, when wealthier white residents move into and gentrify a neighborhood, um, the police gets called more. And Mm. it's specifically um, called on existing black and brown residents. I posted about one of the things I posted on Twitter was about, um, you know, uh, what we see as neighborhoods getting quieter. And some might say, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's a more nuanced conversation. I mean, obviously there's no noise pollution and everyone in New York city isn't like playing music 24 seven at the top of the, you know, I, I don't particularly like, you know, noise all of the time, but yeah. I think there also an added conversation about the character of neighborhoods um, that, you know, there's an ice cream truck, there's dominoes being played, and then wealthier residents moving in and saying, I don't like this. Um, This isn't my cup of tea, calling the police, Um, these people possibly going to jail or at least facing some form of being pushed out of a neighborhood. That's one example, just one. Um, of how it happens, right? Another example that I see in my work all of the time is landlords simply harassing people to get out. You can say, oh, well, you're not going to get pushed out because how can someone be pushed out if they live in a rent-stabilized apartment? They have protections. Not true. Um, I see in my daily job all of the time, someone who's been living somewhere for 20 years and now the neighborhood has changed. And all of a sudden, um, the landlord will take them to court for no reason, but we'll make up a re. Oh, you owe rent. The person doesn't owe any rent. And then when I look at it, the person has been paying seven hundred dollars or a thousand dollars for a rent stabilized apartment in Williamsburg for for you know a two bedroom. So there's a lot of pressure to get these folks out. Mm. Um, 
I have uh, I have a current client right now. Same thing going on. It's been about three frivolous cases at this point of just trying to get this lady out, basically trying to get this lady out. Um, and what tends to happen again is if you catch a client like this and they don't have an attorney and you catch them off guard, they might just sign that piece of paper saying I'll move out. Right. And so that's what they're hoping. Right. And it happens a lot more than people think. So um, if you don't think that in these rapidly gentrifying neighborhoods, Williamsburg, Bed-Stuy, Harlem, that people who do have ten protections under, for example, rent stabilization, that they're not, that there is no push to get them out from paying those very affordable rents, you're wrong. Yeah. Well, well, this, uh, this is, you know, related, but also separate. Like I read an article that you uh, wrote, uh, the professionalism as a racial construct. I could not yeah. pronounce that word anymore, but it, I thought it was very interesting because you, you know, we, we talk about the tenants and their like uh, rights and uh, like how it has to do with race, but race comes as an issue as for an attorney as well, because you, like you said, your clients are like very stressed and you, you don't have the time to, you know, talk about this and whatnot. And sometimes you, in the article, you said that it happens in court and you're like, do I address it now? But I have yeah. this client that I need to take yeah. care of. Yeah. I mean, it's a, so it's just to provide some context for everyone. Um, basically I wrote this essay, uh, talking about me as a black woman attorney and they're only 4.5% of black attorneys in the U S mm -hmm and navigating being a black woman attorney in, and being a black attorney in court and oftentimes housing court, it's been referred to often as kangaroo court. Um, you mm. know, actually kind of thought about that in of itself, but anyway, it's been referred to it just because sometimes um, anything goes. So um, uh, there has been a very much a demographic shift. Most for years and years, most of the landlord attorneys have been primarily white men. And so the mm -hmm. tenant attorney, especially with this new funding in the last couple of years, there's a lot more diversity. Uh, you, The tenant attorney side, legal services side, used to be overwhelmingly white. And in the last 10 years, that's changed. And so it's become much more diverse, especially in the last five years. And so with that, we have these issues in court where, you know, I'm in court, for example, and let's say my opposing counsel is a white male. And sometimes my client's standing right there I'm black, my client's black, and they'll just like cuss both of us out. And then we'll just be standing there like, do, and me as a lawyer, I'm like, do I address this disrespect right now? Or do I just handle the deal, negotiate and ignore it? Yeah. Oh, be a quote unquote, good professional by ignoring it. And so I wrote about, um, just in, in, in some, not to dwell too much on it, but I wrote about, um, unpacked what being a professional actually means and how in many ways it can be weaponized against people of color to keep us in our place in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I highly recommend it. It's, it's a great article. And I, and I like how, you know, so you said that having a thick skin is supposed to be like, makes you a professional, yeah. which is, <laughs> you know, not addressing it, just letting it go. And just like listening, hearing yeah. it and being like, it's, it's fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a great read. And I recommend our listeners uh, go Thank through you. it. We'll, uh, we'll link it in the show notes. Um, Great. So, you know, when, when we were chatting before the episode, um, you were talking about like how important it is for people who, you know, are 
supporters of like truly affordable housing as in like working class people can live in New York and you know just how important it is that, that we have like a positive vision of that rather than just you know um dragging some really some people in my opinion are legitimately annoying that are you know uh but it's, w- what does it look like I mean we we can name it and say we're- <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the I, supply guys I, yeah yeah you know um listen my my uh, my frame of mind first of all just you know to just put it on the record i don't think it's a great idea right um it's never a great idea at all in any context if you have some form of privilege particularly by race and you're advocating for an idea and the people that you are antagonizing are predominantly um marginalized it's never mm-hmm. that's never a good idea. I think that's yeah. a time to kind of step back and go, ah, let me see how this is coming off, or let me see if I'm getting my point right. And I say that as an attorney that I'm very used to having uh debates with people who I don't agree with. I actually have, you know, um a number of people who in the housing debates, they have the same opinions of some of our reply guys. Um, but it's not like this contentious, like, you know, you're a piece of crap, like this whole, like, just talking down, like we just have a different opinion and we're able to like, you know, talk it out and, um, you know, just talk about like talk of housing policy. But I think when it comes to a sort of like smug, like, you know, just like talking out and, and, and like that, and it's a thing, it's a dynamic of where like Mm -hmm. there are multiple people who kind of like the reputation just becomes like this you your antagonist or the people you antagonize are of a certain marginalized group and like you've been told and you just like i think that's problematic i think that's time to kind of take a step back um, absolutely but that's all i'll say about that um uh because i think there are a lot of great debates that we can have about housing uh, because I, and that's the thing, it gets so lost because sometimes I do want to hear what people have to say who have a different opinion. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then the smugness comes in and then I'm like, oh, whatever. You know I mean? It's being a bunch of people who are like, yeah, no, um, we're done. You know, I don't think people understand, like, it's just a different time right now, especially in the country, like people of color over being in any form, especially in a professional setting where we're talking about something that we work in professionally, people over being disrespected. Absolutely. And I mean, there's a lot of things that I, you know, thought there's a lot of things that I, I was like, really, people haven't moved on from that. Like the kind of like uh, one thing that I've seen that I was just sort of like I thought was really cringe uh, is like referring to like wealthy white tech workers uh who are moving from another city as immigrants um and there's like a lot of like reverse racism arguments that are happening around this stuff but uh, <laughs> you know and just like in terms of like people kind of you know saying that you know if people are uh opposing gentrification in their neighborhood or opposing a rezoning that that's trying to like keep people out and equating it to you know racism but the people that are maybe fighting the gentrification are black and brown residents who are probably lower income uh if they're you know like in a gentrifying neighborhood and then the people that they're like 
are opposing them are, you know, sometimes ranging from like upper middle class to like the richest people that our world even has like these billionaire developers. Um, But what I wanted to make sure that we cover before uh, we close out here is, is that like positive vision? Like, what does it look like to actually have, you know, uh, affordable housing, just development in New York, um, the places that people can actually live? What do, what are some of the things that we have to be looking for and demanding? You know, so so jumping off the heels of, of what you said, I think it's really important in these conversations to make sure that urban planning is, is accessible. I think for a very long time, urban planning is a field in of itself. The, the people who are get to be urban planners, it's a very white field, um, especially white male. Um, and that's changed as lot of the same way I said that the legal field has changed in terms of who gets to be a tenant's rights. That's changing, but the reality is for a long time, it's it's definitely been predominantly white. Um, and then in terms of there's the accessibility of who gets to do the work, and then there's the accessibility of, okay, you're in the work, and then who gets to access the actual developments and what's happening. And part of what my goal has been is to try to make these conversations more accessible to everyday people. And so I try not to sort of like use, you know, I'm not like when I'm talking to people, I'm not like, oh, you know, R5, 6, like, R, you know, it, you know, we want to talk about things so that people can give their opinions. I'm a big believer in community input um, because this is the main thing that people say when, they see me. This is the main thing I hear. I do a lot of events in the community um, as as the commissioner and sometimes as a tenants rights attorney. And the main thing people say is like no one's these are. And and when I say in the community, black and brown communities, the main people say is no one's listening to us. No one gives a crap. Um, the meetings are during the day. They're not accessible. These conversations are not accessible. So I think it is really important to have a conversation and really important to keep in mind that when you're having the conversations, the most marginalized people need to be at the table and need to be heard. And uh, I can tell you right now, I've been in multiple, forget, for, we. I, I think we've sort of been talking about online, forget online. I've been in multiple spaces in person um, and that's an area that can get better. We need to have more people who are working class, black and brown at the table um, with a voice, particularly sticking up for tenants. It's not a lot. There, there aren't, you know, there aren't a lot of Leahs at the table. I'll, I'll tell you that much. I am the first legal services tenants rights attorney on the commission, and this is New York City. So I think that that says a lot. It does say a lot. And, you know, there's just so many layers of it. Like one thing that you were talking about when you hosted a Twitter space that I hadn't thought a lot about before, it's just like, for example, how a lot of these new developments are studios in one bedroom. So they just can't accommodate right. families and families, yeah, that's 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 an issue, right? I mean, that's an that and so that's something people bring up about, you know, you know, there's this I people are scared about the idea of New York City changing into this sort of like business class city where people are just here to work and then everyone is pushed out to the suburbs or wherever, so that the city itself is just reserved for people to work. Um, that's something that I hear frequently that people bring up. And I wish we, you know, I, these are the conversations that I want to have. I was going to say, I wish we had more time to talk about it. Um, but um, yeah. Well, you know, I, I know that um, 
you have a very busy job and you have to <laughs> get back to it. And we just really appreciate your time. And um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Where can people find you? I am on Twitter at Leah from Brooklyn, um, L-E-A-H-F-R-O-M-B-K-L-Y-N. So I'm constantly, or I was going to say consistently, uh, talking about housing <laughs> on well, it's professionalism, professional, the workplace, but you can find me there. Thank you so much. This was so great. Thank you so much for inviting Thank me. You. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to Reply, guys. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find us. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Mohanad al Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song is performed by Emily Fremgen and written by Emily with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we are at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's, and I am at Mohanad al And Twitter is where you can find our reply guys. They are always with us. Bernie, take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley this land was made for you and me this land is your land this land is my